You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. We did kind of an intro background uh, type perspective last week, kind of setting the stage for these four chapters of Jonah. We said this is ultimately a story that points to Christ. Jesus uses this story as a teaching tool in Matthew 12. He's communicating to the Pharisees and the scribes that um, the sign of Jonah is relevant for them because they're asking for a sign about believing in, in the Messiah or not believing in the Messiah. And Jesus says the only sign that you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. And so he, he uses this story as an opportunity to point them to the validity of the Messiah. We said that there are um, some differences in the book of Jonah uh, with other prophetic books that kind of sets it apart, sets it as different. Um, it's mostly narrative and very little prophecy. Um, instead of prophesying against a foreign nation from Israel, Jonah is sent to the nation. That's a big difference um, between the other uh, minor prophet books that they are prophesying against other nations but kind of doing it from the comforts of Israel, whereas Jonah is being sent to this foreign nation. Um, and most of the most of the minor prophets, the book contains all the oracles that they're supposed to tell to the foreign nation, whereas this one's far more narrative. Um, we talked about the historical accuracy of the book being debated. Is it did it really happen? Did it not really happen? Um, and we looked at some of the reasons for uh, people saying that it doesn't happen because it contains a lot of fable type qualities. There's a great storm that springs up. Uh, the the whole idea of lot casting and it falling on Jonah and not somebody else, the fish tail, the size of Nineveh, the speed of repentance for Nineveh. Um, there's a lot of different aspects that make people doubt the validity of this story. Um, the major reason we boil down to the doubt is that there's a lack of belief in miracles. Well, the reason we don't believe it happened is because we doubt that miracles are valid. I told you last week that we could research scientifically and try to find other accounts of men living inside of fish and, and, and surviving, and we could try to prove this scientifically. Because I told you that some of the commentaries started talking about that, and I was tempted to go down that road, and then I was like, it's really not a big deal because I believe Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego survived a fiery furnace. So there may be scientific proof that a man could survive in a fish for three days, but I don't need the scientific proof to believe that it happened, because I believe more more crazy things happen in Scripture than, than a man surviving in a fish for three days. So based on what I believe in other parts of Scripture, I'm content with believing that, that Jonah survived in a fish for three days, whether there's scientific proof for it or not. The major reason for not seeing this, uh, for seeing this as historical, is the way that Jesus treats it. And we've already reflected on that, that Jesus points to this story as validation for his resurrection. Um, and it would seem odd for him to point to a fable or a parable to validate true facts that were going to happen in his life. Um, the major theme of the book, we said, is God's mercy and compassion uh, extends even to the heathen nations on condition of their repentance. So that ultimately the Lord is a God of boundless compassion. It's not just for us talking about the Israel context, but it's also for them, the Gentile context. And this wasn't supposed to be foreign to the children of Israel, right? Like the Abrahamic covenant, I'm establishing a covenant with you, Abraham. We're going to raise up a nation, but that nation is going to be a blessing to all other nations. So this concept of 
us and them wasn't supposed to exist with the Israelite people. There was a, there was a gospel communication there with Abraham that his seed was going to be a blessing to all other nations. Um, and so God is continuing to uh, steadily reveal that through the Old Testament, that he has a heart and mindset for the ends of the earth, not just for national Israel. Um, it answers the big question, is God concerned about anyone besides Israel? God poses questions to Jonah. Should you be angry that I'm doing things this way? And should I not pity Nineveh? What's ironic is that Jonah expects God's compassion throughout this story to be applied to himself, but that he hopes that God will not faithfully apply his compassion towards others, specifically Nineveh. He feels they don't deserve it. I told you last week, sometimes it gets communicated in children's church that Jonah was scared to go to the mission field, that he was scared to go talk to Nineveh, and we don't pick up on that anywhere in the story. The reason we don't pick up on that is because Jonah tells us why he didn't go. He says, God, the reason I didn't go is because I knew you were going to forgive him. I knew you were going to save him. I know you're that type of God, and I didn't want him to be saved. So it had nothing to do with him being scared about going to the mission field, scared to go to this city that was the enemy of Israel. He didn't go because he hated these people. They were his enemy. And he was pro-Israel, national Israel. It's all about us. He says, I'm not going to talk to this Gentile nation. I'm not going to these people. And the reason I'm not going is because I know you'll forgive them. I know you're that kind of God. So we start to pick up on the, the real issue, the real depth of sin going on with Jonah. But this is not that different from the rest of Israel. The outcome of this story is real similar to the uh, unforgiving servant and the prodigal son parables that we referenced last week. You have those parables being given as a sign that Israel was failing to love others surrounding them. You even see that in the, uh, the attitude in the Good Samaritan parable. That it takes somebody who's not full-blooded Jew to step in and do the right thing. And we're going to see this week that the heathen were acting more like believers in Yahweh than Jonah was acting. And that's the compelling aspect of the story is that you expect the prophet of God to, to, to live faithfully, and what you actually end up seeing is the heathen responding the way that Jonah should have been responding in this story. So chapter 1, and we're only going to cover chapter 1 today. Um, in giving you the outline list last week, we said that chapter 1 could be labeled disobedience and danger. It's running from God to the sea. We see that theme in chapter 1, running from God to the sea. Number one, we find out in this chapter who Jonah was. We're going to read through the chapter real quick so that we can reference uh, different aspects of it uh, throughout our teaching time today. So let's start in verse one. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil has come upon up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. 
Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give you a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a great sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I told you last week this story takes place near the time of Jeroboam II's rule of Israel. We know that because in 2 Kings 14.25, it's the only other place that Jonah is mentioned from a narrative standpoint. Jonah was the prophet during Jeroboam II's time. He prophesied a good prophecy about Israel. Ultimately, Israel was going to enjoy a time of prosperity, um, and their borders were going to expand. So that's what's going on in the context of this. Now, I told you what's interesting is that when you read 2 Kings, if you want to go back and read it, 2 Kings 14, it's real clear that Israel is sinful and Jeroboam II is sinful. And there's absolutely no repentance that takes place in that chapter. They're evil people doing what their fathers did. Jeroboam continued to be evil like his dad and like his granddad. And yet God, because he's faithful to his covenant, Second Kings says he chose to not blot out Israel because he had made a promise to Abraham. He prophesied something good that their borders are going to expand and he's going to take care of them. We said what's interesting is that Jonah has no problem with that prophecy. He doesn't come to God and say, look, you're a just God. You need to punish Israel. They're sinful. You need to judge them for their wickedness. No, he readily prophesies this good prophecy upon sinners that things are going to be good for us. And yet when he's told to prophesy uh, judgment and the opportunity of repentance to Nineveh, he says, no, you can't let them off. I know you're going to let them off, and you have no right to let them off. Even though he doesn't make that same argument about his own people who don't repent. Right? Like he's, he's, he's thinking, man, if I go to Nineveh and preach judgment, they're going to repent and then God's going to forgive them. And that's not right and that's not fair. But what he is saying is it's fair for God to bless my people even though we don't repent. So Jonah's claiming that God's justice is off, but really Jonah's understanding of justice is completely off. He's being unfaithful to apply the same standard that he's trying to hold God to. 
There's a Jewish tradition that um, Jonah may also be the son of the widow of Zarephath from 1 Kings 17. You'll remember Elijah had gone to this widow. Um, the widow was faithful to give him food, and God kept giving her more food. And then her son dies, and Elijah raises him from the dead. There's a Jewish, Jewish tradition that this, that was actually Jonah. There's not uh, any biblical proof for that, but kind of an interesting side note that um, God would, potentially was already raising him up at an early age and was clearly identifying that he had a purpose for Jonah, um, even within that story. Um, Jonah was a prophet. Last thing about who Jonah was, he's a prophet. A prophet was a man who saw into the purposes of the eternal God and was divinely commissioned to bring God's people under the practical authority of his word. So it's a man who sees the purposes of God and he's divinely commissioned to help bring God's people under the practical authority of his word. There's a, a startling uh, passage in Amos chapter 3 about the role of the prophet. Amos chapter 3 verse 7, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. Verse 8, The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God is spoken. Who can but prophesy? Well, obviously Jonah, right? Like Amos is communicating, look, there's a special privilege to being a prophet. Like we get insight into the secrets of God. He gives those to us to communicate to the people. He says the lion is roaring. How can you not fear this God who's giving us prophecy? How could you not prophesy when you get this type of message? And we see how startling true the rebellion of Jonah is in light of this passage. That Jonah says, I don't fear the lion. I don't tremble at the foot of the lion. I will not prophesy like he's commanded me to when he tells me to go to Nineveh. Amos would have had nothing to do with that type of mindset. And yet we see the extent of Jonah's rebellion here. Number two, what did Yahweh want him to do? We see the answer to that question. What Yahweh wanted him to do. God commands Jonah to go to Nineveh. We said last week this is the hated enemy of Israel. This whole story is set in motion because of the great wickedness of Nineveh. God desires holiness for all of his creation. It's not just relegated to Israel here. God says their wickedness has come up before me. God is holy and he will only tarry for so long with his wrath. And then he brings judgment upon his pe these people. We said that Jonah's not scared of what might happen to him in going. He's angry at what will happen to Nineveh. He's angry that God will be merciful to Nineveh. So he chooses not to go. Has anybody ever read the book Moby Dick? Anybody ever read that classic? Apparently there's a whole section in there where there's a, a chaplain who preaches a sermon on Jonah. Um, and apparently it's a pretty good sermon because a lot of the commentaries like use that as like uh, teaching in their commentaries. And so like every commentary I'm picking up, like they're referencing Moby Dick. And I'm like, man, like I need to buy Moby Dick as my other commentary to this passage. Uh, but there's a statement that the chaplain says in the book that's really, really good. He says, Jonah found God's instructions to be a hard command. But all the things that God would have us do are hard. If we obey God, we must disobey ourselves. And it's in the disobeying ourselves wherein the hardness of obeying God consists. So God's commands are hard. Simply for the fact that to obey them, we have to disobey ourselves most of the time. 
Because our desires so often are contrary to what God wants. And as we're in that process of sanctification, God is renewing those desires. But he says the difficulty for Jonah wasn't the greatness of Nineveh. The difficulty for Jonah was that he was having to disobey his own perspective about the Ninevites. And that's where the hardness of the command came in, is that it involved him disobeying himself. Number three, Jonah's response. Jonah's response. So, verse 3, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah's response basically was, if you don't want to do it my way, I'll just leave. Tarshish is probably in modern-day Spain. We said, I think last week, that it's as, as far by water as Jonah could have sailed from Nineveh. So if, if, if Jonah's traveling by water, it's as far as he could get from Nineveh on a boat. So he's not just sitting tight and saying, ah, I don't think I'm going to go to Nineveh. It's like he walked out the door and said, Nineveh's to the left. I'm going as far right as I can. I'm getting out of here. I'm not going. And on top of that, I don't want to hear from God again. And so he really wants to isolate himself from God's people, right? Because a lot of time God speaks to us through other individuals. And so it's almost as though Jonah's saying, I've heard the message, and I don't want to ever hear it again. I'm leaving this area, and I'm going as far away from God's work as possible. Now, I don't know that, that, that Jonah really believed that he could escape God's presence completely. I mean, this is a man of God. I'm sure he understood the Psalms that talk about that, that Psalm 139, we can't escape God's presence, right? No matter where we go, God's with us. But I think he is making steps in the direction of, I don't want to be around any of God's people where I can be convicted about the choices and decisions that I'm making. And we see that happen a lot of times in church life too, right? When, when God's giving instruction to people in the church, accountability groups are holding each other accountable to fighting sin, and then all of a sudden somebody doesn't want to fight sin anymore, rarely do you really have to kick somebody out of the church, right? Rarely do you have somebody that continues to come and say, I'm going to come here and I'm going to be sinful. Most of the time that person says, I'm going to be sinful and I don't want to be around you people anymore because I don't want to hear it from you anymore. Jonah makes that kind of decision. He says, I'm leaving. I mean, he could have stayed right there. But he says, I'm leaving, and I don't want to hear from anybody about this. I don't want to hear from any other prophets that come, right? Like David sins, Nathan comes and gets in his face about it. Jonah says, I want to get as far away from here as I can. I don't want to hear from God anymore. I'm done. Really seeing the the depth of his rebellion and the depth of the hardness of his heart on this issue. He wants nothing to do with God any longer. What he ends up encountering is that because he runs, he'll now encounter a great storm and a great fish to go with that great city. It's the same uh, Hebrew word that's used for uh, Nineveh being a great city. We see as we work through this that a great storm springs up and a great fish swallows him. So if there was any fear about a great city, not only does Jonah end up in Nineveh, he has to encounter two other great things that are very troublesome uh, experiences for him. He makes the whole job harder than it had to be. Number four, God's response. God's response. So Jonah goes down to Joppa, thinks I'm out of here. We don't have 
information about what that conversation looked like. Uh, I'm sure it came up amongst the mariners, the sailors there, that obviously this guy wants out of town quick. Uh, so there's obviously a situation that is that has caused this guy to need to leave. Um, we're not given a whole lot of information about how Jonah talks his way on here. We do see that, that Jonah does everything legally, though. Right? Like he doesn't do anything illegal to escape God. I mean, he goes down, he pays his fare, he's not a stowaway. So the only thing that he's really done wrong is he's, he's not doing what God has told him to do. He's not doing anything else illegal. He's simply running from what God has commanded that he do. I told you that it's real interesting when you, when you think about covenant that this is the exact location that Peter was in the book of Acts when he gets the vision about the cleanliness of the Gentiles now that they need the gospel. So we said that, uh, you know, hundreds of years later, Peter's at Joppa. God comes to him. Because you remember, Peter had that, that little issue where he wasn't fully in on the whole Gentile idea. He was still clinging a little bit to his Jewishness. And God comes to him in a vision in Joppa and says, you've got to go talk to Cornelius. You've got to get the gospel to these Gentile people. And, and you know, I told you last week, I wonder if, if Peter, even if it ran through his mind, hey, there was another prophet of God in Joppa that was told to go to the Gentiles, and he made the wrong decision. And I wonder if that ever went through Peter's mind as he made the right decision. But Jonah makes the wrong decision. He chooses to run, and we see that God won't let him run. God's response, the storm is God's loving intervention towards one of his own. He won't allow Jonah to run. Hebrews 10.31 says it's a dangerous thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now what's interesting here, and I think this is, this is relevant just to the topic of church discipline again, is that Scripture tells us that if somebody continues in sin, that we're to let them go knowing that God is going to bring them back, right? But there's plenty of people that leave and nobody's chasing them. God's not running after them because they're not one of his. Jonah, it's clear, is one of God's because God goes after him. He seeks him out. He won't let him run. This is where I meant by God always working good. This storm is for Jonah's good. This fish is for Jonah's good. Because it, had, had God allowed him to, Jonah would have fled to the, to the end of the known world and would have died in obscurity, never to hear from God again. And, Jonah, and God says, no, that's not how it's going to end for you. I love you too much. You're one of mine. I will hunt you down and bring you back. I will intervene in your life when you're blinded to your own sin and rebellion. And we see that play out here throughout the rest of chapter 1. I think it's important to note when Jonah gets on this boat, because there's the, the question, if you were to be studying this and reading it for the first time, is are the mariners going to be killed for this too? Are the sailors going to be killed for this sin of Jonah? I think it's important to note that these guys aren't innocent, right? Like essentially everybody on board this ship is running from God. We want to apply Romans chapter 1. These people have rejected their knowledge of God. They've turned their worship over to created things rather than the creator. So when he boards this boat, these individuals aren't innocent victims to Jonah's rebellion. We see in Scripture there are other times when people make bad decisions against Yahweh, and his wrath affects other people, right? Like poor decisions. David counts Israel. He, he does a census that's against God's will, and Israelites die from it. Now, they weren't involved in that decision-making, but they're killed for it. There's other instances. Achan steals from, from Jericho, and then the army of Israel goes up against Ai, and people are slaughtered for his sin. 
They're not innocent people, though, right? Like, they're sinful. So God is very just and right to punish sin. So it's not that there's this lack of justice hanging in balance here, that if these, if these sailors die, if these mariners die, then God's unjust for killing them simply because Jonah disobeyed. These sailors are, are, are guilty of sin as well. And had, had the whole ship gone down and these people had died, God would have still been very good and just because the wages of sin is death. But we see God's mercy in this story. We see that God doesn't kill these individuals who deserve death as much as Jonah does. Instead, his mercy and compassion rings true here before we ever get to Nineveh. The storm begins. We're told in verse 7 or verse 4, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. The irony there is you've got these two words where it says that the mariners are hurling stuff out of the boat. And what's God doing? He's just hurling wind right back at them. Like they can't accomplish anything. They're trained. These guys are experienced guys on the sea. They're trained to know how to handle storms. You start lightening your load so you don't sink. So they're doing everything they've been trained to do to get out of this storm, right? And the only thing that they see is that it keeps getting worse and worse. God's up there just hurling it right back. And Jonah's in the bottom sleeping. They recognize pretty quick this isn't a normal storm. Like, they immediately start to, to engage with deities about what's going on here. They're trained well enough to know that maybe this isn't the time of year where this type of storm should be springing up. But they're pretty clued into the fact that this, this is not normal. Us hurling cargo out is not going to get us out of this situation. And so they start appealing to any God and every God they can think of. I mean, they're, they're calling roll here. Who do you know? Who do you know? Who do you know? Let's start praying. Let's start crying. Hopefully one of us will get it right. You know, it's, it's that picture that, that when Paul was speaking in, uh, in uh, the book of Acts where they had gods for everything and they even had uh, the unknown God for the one that we missed. I mean, they're just roll calling here trying to get out of this situation. It says in verse 6, so the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. They want to know who's responsible. A lot of the commentators point out that Jonah 1.6, the wordage there is very, very similar to uh, verse 2, where it says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Because he's chosen not to do that, you have this captain who's come down to him and telling him to arise and to call out to your God because you're in danger. So it may be that Jonah kind of wakes up and he's hearing this guy talking and it sounds like so similar to what he's trying to run from, this idea of arising and calling out. And he finally wakes up and he realizes what's going on and this captain's in his face screaming at him, who's your God? Start praying to your God. We need help. They end up casting lots to, to, to really determine who is at fault here. Verse 7, they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. This idea of lot casting, from what I understand, is that they would have had dice similar to ours, but it would have been light on one side, dark on the other. And so they'd throw it in your lap with your, uh, your overtype clothing, 
Um, and so you'd all kind of sit around, kind of squat it out, and you'd throw these dice in the laps of your garments. And I think it was like if both sides were up, it was you. Uh, if it was light, if it was dark, it wasn't you. If it was half light, half dark, it was kind of a roll again, do it again. And so they're doing this, and they're throwing lots and casting lots, and it ends up on Jonah. And that's not by accident. Um, and we know from other passages of Scripture where God is sovereign over even lot casting. And so it's pinpointed to Jonah that he's the one. He's the culprit. He's the one that's responsible. Again, these guys were probably guilty of things that would have warranted God's wrath. I mean, they're, they're heathen individuals. They're sinful. But it's clear that there's a specific act that's in question here, and it falls upon Jonah as the one who's guilty. Now, they begin to question Jonah. Verse 8, they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? They question Jonah about his identity. They want to know his religion. That's ultimately what it comes down to. What are you? What do you do? And where do you come from? Like, what, what have you done that has made you guilty? Who's the God that's responsible for this? And Jonah responds. He said to them, I'm a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah responds that he's a Hebrew, he's an Israelite, and he fears Yahweh. At this time, it's probably necessary for him to clarify who his God is. It should have been that he could have just said, I'm a Hebrew, and that kind of answers all your questions. You know who my God is. But we've already said that in, in, in Israel right now, there's, there's rebellion, there's Baal worship going on. And so Jonah even has to clarify, I'm a Hebrew, and unfortunately that doesn't necessarily tell you who my God is. But, but I'm, I'm a fearer of Yahweh, the, the one who makes the sea and makes the land. That's important too, the maker of the sea, that's where they are. He's also the maker of the land. That's where they want to be right now. They're trying desperately to get out of this storm and get to dry land. Psalms 95.5 may have been the, the passage that Jonah is referencing here in his discussion with these sailors. Verse 3, For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. What's startling here is that Jonah is communicating good theology, right? Like he says, I'm a Hebrew, I follow Yahweh, I fear Yahweh, and, and let me just communicate to you, he's sovereign over everything. So, you guys are praying to gods that don't count, that aren't worth it, because my God is the God of everything. He's the God of the sea. He's the God of the land. He's communicating right theology. He's communicating it to heathen people, the very people that he doesn't want to have to talk to about the gospel, about Jesus, right? About, about who Yahweh is and, and this story of redemption. He's actually communicating this. They've asked him the questions, and he's, he's springing it out. Good theology all around. The question really is, though, who really fears Yahweh in this situation? Because you don't even pick up on Jonah being scared about this storm, right? Like, Jonah's not panicking, and we don't have any indication that he starts crying out to God over this. He's just kind of matter of fact. This is who I am. This is who my God is. We know he's not scared of dying, because in a minute he's going to suggest that they kill him. So I guess he really doesn't have anything to be scared of at this point. But what we do see is that these heathen begin to respond with fear, right? They're already scared of the storm, 
But look at what happens after they after Jonah communicates who his God is. Verse 10, then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord or Yahweh because he had told them. So Jonah says, I fear Yahweh. Not really. He's resisting God, right? But the mariners do fear Yahweh. They're afraid of offending God. Now, I tend to think that they had some type of historical knowledge about who this God was. Like, I don't think Jonah just throws it out and says, I worship Yahweh. And they're like, well, who is that? Like, we haven't heard of that God. I think for some of them, it kind of dawned on them, we've heard stories about this God. Now, we're not submitted to them. We're not sure if we fully believe it. But we've heard that your God drowned the Egyptians. We've heard what your God did at that ancient city, Jericho. Like these things would have would have been around. These stories would have been around. Remember when um, when the two spies come into Jericho, Rahab. This was this was years later. Rahab says, "We know all about your God and what He's doing." So I think it kind of dawned on some of these guys. It says they get even more afraid. They were already afraid by the storm. They get even more afraid when they get this theological lesson from Jonah, and they're like, "How could you have done this? How could you have done this to your God?" And I think they really start to fear Yahweh in the appropriate and the right way here. Because for me, if I'm on this boat and I'm convinced that somebody's at fault and some God is angry and responsible, my first inclination would have been, okay, the lot's fell on you. You admit it. You're out of here. I'm throwing you over the boat myself. But that's not how they respond, right? Like in my anger, I'd have been like, you're responsible for this. Let's throw you over the boat. Let's get you out of here and that should solve it. But they get real scared and they're like, whoa, Jonah, what do we need to do? Like, what does your God want us to do? Like, they don't just react and get rid of them on their own account. You really see this level of submission of tell us what to do, anything, because we want your God satisfied. Whatever it takes, you communicate with us. Jonah should have been the one fearing God. He says he fears God, but really what we see here is the Gentiles that are starting to develop a an appropriate fear of Yahweh. The storm worsens in your notes, and Jonah has some options. They're asking him, what do we do? Verse 11, they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Now, Jonah has some options here. I think it's important that we note all the options that he has here. Okay, it's, it's clear that Jonah's not so blinded to his sin that he doesn't admit it, right? Like, Jonah's like, it's me. It's me. Like, we could have probably skipped the whole, lot, the whole lot casting procedure. Like, it's me. Like, I'm running from Yahweh. That's what I'm doing. He's not hiding behind it. He's very open and honest with it. He doesn't seem very scared about it. And they say, what do we have to do to get out of this? Jonah has some options. First is that he can just drown with the mariners. I mean, he can just drown with these sailors. He seems content to do that because he doesn't throw himself overboard, right? Like Jonah doesn't stand up and say, hey, here's what needs to happen. I need to throw myself overboard. You guys will be fine. I mean, he kind of leaves it up to them. If they don't throw him over, I think he's fine dying with them. That's one option. I can just drown with you guys. Option number two is I can drown by myself. So if you guys want to throw me overboard, that's fine too. 
There's a third option here. The third option is you cry to God, you repent, and you go do what he's told you to do, right? Like, I fully believe, because Jonah knows the God of Jonah 4, 2. Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, this is the God that he doesn't want to tell Nineveh about, right? I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I'm fully convinced that if Jonah had cried out to God like this captain had told him to, if Jonah had said, here's the answer, turn the boat around, get me back to Joppa so I can go to Nineveh and everybody will be fine, I fully believe the storm would have stopped. Now, I don't have any, any assurance from that from Scripture, but I fully believe that if we're, if we're highlighting God's compassion here, God is concerned about getting him to Nineveh, I think if Jonah breaks down here, admits that he's wrong, repents, just like Nineveh is going to be commanded to do, that the storm would have stopped, they'd have sailed back to Joppa, and he'd have been on his way, and he could have bypassed the great fish. Then it would have been just great city, great storm. Jonah doesn't really seem to even consider that option. I mean, his answer to them is, throw me overboard. That's your only, that's your only option. Throw me overboard and kill me, and then the storm will stop. It's my fault, he says in verse 12. My fault that the storm is here. Throw me overboard. He has no real message of hope or comfort except to kill him. This is different from Jesus. When Jesus is in the storm in the Gospels, he's right with his heavenly father. He has nothing to fear, right? The storm stops. Nobody's at fault. Even Paul has an experience in Acts 27. A missionary going to Rome. Storm springs up. Paul stands up and says, look, our God will take care of us. Jonah stands up and says, you're going to have to throw me overboard because i got nothing else. Now he does. The answer would have been repent, but he doesn't offer that. He says, kill me, throw me overboard. Now this is what's really starting. I don't know if you pick up on this in children's church stories when this is being covered. They don't throw him overboard, right? Like it would have been the simple solution. Okay, Jonah, tell us what to do. Throw me overboard. Okay, we don't even know you. You're out of here. They don't do that, though, right? It says in verse 13, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. So the mariners have some options. They can throw them overboard. Or the first option they they select is to try to get them back to shore. Now, I don't know if their just mindset is we got to get to dry land. Maybe that maybe he was full disclosure. Hey, guys, I'm running. I'm supposed to go to Nineveh. And maybe their response is, we're not going to kill you. We're going to get you back to shore so you can go to Nineveh, even though Jonah's not repentant. But what's startling here is that, and you gotta, you got to pick up on this, Jonah ran away from Nineveh. And we're going to see later, it's full of hundreds of thousands of people. Jonah says, I'm content with hundreds of thousands of people dying and perishing in God's wrath. And I'll run from it. And I'll never communicate the good news to them. These heathen mariners are saying, we're not ready to kill one man. I mean, they've got kind of a value of life here. They're like, we're not okay with throwing you overboard and drowning you. So we're going to keep fighting. We're going to try to get back to dry land. That's a startling difference to Jonah's attitude, right? Like, I'm a Jew, and I'm not going to tell anybody else about Yahweh. I'll run from that. I don't care if thousands and thousands and thousands of people die. 
these Gentile people are like, man, we don't care where you come from. You're a man. Like, nobody deserves that kind of fate. We're going to keep fighting this storm. And they do everything they can to get Jonah back. Jonah does everything he can to avoid saving the Ninevites. These men do everything they can to save his life. Verse 13, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. And finally, they realize, I mean, we can't do this. We can't do this. Therefore, they called out to Yahweh. Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood before you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They fear what Yahweh might do to them. They feel like they can't rightly judge him. They're like, man, we don't have the right to kill this. We don't have the right to pronounce judgment on this guy and throw him overboard. And even when they reach that decision, they're crying out to God, God, don't hold us accountable for this. Like, don't hold us accountable for this man's blood. They're like, we don't have the right to judge what's going on between you two. And again, is in contrast to Jonah saying, I have every right to judge the relationship between Nineveh and God. Right? And you have no right to forgive those people. These heathen are like, hey, we don't have the right to judge. We don't want to throw you over. Like, we're really fearful of doing this. The heathen are acting like the prophet of God should have been acting. And Jonah's acting like he has no knowledge of who God is. Verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Only people we see talking to God in this passage are people that don't know him. The prophet of God is strikingly silent when it comes to speaking to Yahweh. When the storm's over, we see that God receives the glory from the mariners. It says they feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. Now this is... This is not a foxhole conversion. What do I mean by a foxhole conversion? What that, does that expression mean? You've heard that before. A foxhole conversion. Yeah, like this is somebody who's about to die who starts like making all kinds of promises like, God, if you'll just get me out of this, then I'll, I'll be a missionary for the rest of my life. You know, like that's, that's the type of extreme example of what we would label a foxhole conversion. Somebody who, who needs God to show up and I'm going to make promise after promise after promise and hope that you'll come down here and intervene. It's not what this is, right? Because it says that after the storm ceased from its raging, these men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. It says they fear him, they offer sacrifices, and they make vows. And they probably don't do this until after they return to land, right? Because they were hurling everything off the boat. I doubt that animals were still on the boat at this point, right? Like they've done everything possible to beat this storm. They probably didn't have a lot of sacrificial animals left on board for them to offer to God. I mean, they've probably ditched everything. They don't want to kill Jonah, the man, but anything else is fair game. Get it off. So there's even more of a time gap between when they do this type of sacrificing and vow making. It's not just on the boat, and it's not before the storm stops, right? Like, they're not making sacrifices to Yahweh while the storm is raging. God, please stop this storm. We'll make vows to you. We'll worship you. We'll do whatever you want. 
It's after the fact. They could have easily gone back to buy their business and said, man, that was crazy, wasn't it? Like, wow. Anybody believe that Yahweh stuff? No, probably not. But, man, that was crazy how that ended as soon as we threw him off the boat. Let's get back to where we need to be. And they could have just gone on their way. But it says, after it ceased, they feared him, they sacrificed to him, and made vows to him. Now, it's discouraging to me because a lot of commentators want to downplay this, and they're like, eh, it probably didn't stick. They probably weren't really converted. Probably just kind of an outward thing they did. And, and that may be true. But I told you last week, I don't want to doubt the Holy Spirit and, and conversions. Because we said that a lot of people doubt the whole city of Nineveh converting. Like, that couldn't happen. Like, the Holy Spirit doesn't do that. And yet, that's what we're told the Holy Spirit does, right? Like, he, he regenerates people when the truth is being spoken. So, we know Jonah presents truth. We ought to expect that people would be converted. So, I told you that when we hear about mass conversion stories, let's don't harp so much on the response. Well, you know, how did they respond? Let's harp more on, well, what was the message that was given? If truthful message was presented, if the gospel was presented, let's have faith that the Holy Spirit saves like he promises he will. And so I've got to see that there's supernatural stuff going on here. Yahweh is very involved in this story. I don't really see any reason to try to downplay this and dismiss it and make these guys go back to their heathen ways right away. In fact, this is very consistent with what Israel was supposed to be doing. If you look at um, Psalm 116. Psalm 116, verse 16. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Right? Like this is appropriate worship. Sacrifices, making vows. A lot of commentators speculate they may have even gone all the way to Jerusalem to do this. I don't see any reason to downplay this. I don't see any reason to say, ah, they probably forgot about Yahweh next week. I mean, God is very intentional with this story. He's communicating that he cares about non-Israel as well as Israel. And I think this is a, a, a good byproduct. We said God always works good. I think this is a good byproduct that comes out of rebellion. That because Jonah doesn't go straight to Nineveh, he actually ends up interacting with his people. And God ends up saving these, these heathen sailors in the midst of this rebellion. I think we see God's sovereignty here. He's sovereign over evangelism, and he's very evangelistic in his sovereignty. Right? Like, like he's completely in control of the gospel getting to people. And being in very control, he's constantly getting the gospel to people. He's very evangelistic in his sovereignty, and I believe these guys are saved in the midst of Jonah's rebellion. Now, the application for us. I mean, this is a great story. We've pointed out some, some unique details of this story. How does this, how does this factor in with our life? I want to continue to draw you back to the question. Is there anyone that you believe does not deserve God's mercy? I mean, that's got to be the question that we're asking ourselves. Are we... 
blinded to the fact that there's prejudice that maybe exists inside of us to where we're not concerned with the gospel getting to certain people, maybe people groups, maybe individuals, maybe our neighbor that annoys us, maybe our boss that we just don't like. Like, it's easy to think about taking the gospel, but not to that person. Like, that person doesn't deserve God. And we would never say that, right? Like, we would never verbalize, Adam, I don't believe my boss deserves to be saved. I just really don't like him that much. Like, we would never verbalize that, but we, we maybe believe that based on our actions. The way we talk about certain individuals, the, the lack of gospel communication, that we withhold the gospel because we don't believe they deserve God's mercy. We're just not concerned about them getting God's mercy. It may not be a hatred. It may just be indifference. Remember, we said there's an there's a interpretation for this passage. Jonah hated these individuals. The application doesn't have to be that strict for us. It can be we're indifferent to people. Maybe we don't hate them. We're just indifferent to them. We've been commanded to take the gospel, to make disciples. We have that same type of commission applied to us. Jonah had the specific people to go to. We have a more general call, Matthew 28, to go, to evangelize, to make disciples. If we're not doing that, though, we have to figure out the, the reason behind that for why. And even if it's indifference, we've got to wake up from our indifference in the same way Jonah needed to wake up from his hatred towards these people that he refuses to share the gospel with. Second question for us to kind of meditate on as we get ready to leave today. Is there anything about God's salvation plan that we doubt? Is there anything about God's salvation plan that we doubt? Jonah doubted God's justice. That's why he opted out of the salvation plan, right? Like he says, I don't think it's right for you to forgive these people. Therefore, I'm not going to tell them. Because I don't think it's right. So God, Jonah doubts God's justice. I don't really find myself doubting God's justice. When it comes to his salvation plan. I mean, I've bought into Exodus 34, 6 through 7. God doesn't clear the guilty. Those that are saved, he punishes through his son, Jesus Christ. So God is very just. He doesn't just say, oh, I love you so much, I'll forgive you every sin. He says, I love you, and I'll, I'll pay for your sin with my son. So God is just. Sin is always punished. Either you'll pay for it in hell for eternity, or Christ pays for it on the cross, but his wrath will be absorbed and satisfied. So I don't doubt God's justice. For me, way too often I doubt God's effectiveness. And so I opt out of the salvation plan. Jonah says, I'm not sharing because I don't want you to save them. I have to admit that too often I say, I'm not going to share because I don't really think you're going to save them. I've shared the gospel too many times and people don't get saved. That's where my doubt flushes itself out. Is that I look at it and say, that guy over there probably needs the gospel, but here's how it'll probably go. I'll go over there and he won't listen and he'll be confused and I'll be confused at how to answer his questions. And so I'm just going to save us both the trouble and not go over there. My doubt is the effectiveness. And I even have to fight to not dismiss these mariners' salvation, the salvation of them, because I, I think, well, that doesn't happen. People don't get in a storm and then get saved. Like they need like years of gospel presentation before they'd ever submit to Yahweh. See, I doubt the effectiveness of God. 
So when it comes time for us to start sharing, like, hey, who have you shared the gospel with this week? My mouth will be silent because I believe at times God just won't save them. And I know that's wrong, and I see that in Scripture, and, like, I have no reason to, to have those doubts. God's sovereign over salvation. He's not called me to be effective. He's called me to be faithful. But too often I opt out because I don't believe he's going to do it. Jonah opted out because he believed he would do it. I mean, Jonah, he didn't have any doubts about the effectiveness, right? He's like, I'm going to walk into this city, and they're going to get saved. And so I'm not going anywhere near there. My response would have been, I'm not going that far. Like, they're not going to get saved. Why would I go that far? Nobody gets saved when I talk to them. Third question, are we ever guilty of having our own ideas of how God should work? And checking out if he doesn't follow our plans. Are we ever guilty of having our own ideas of how God should work? And checking out if he doesn't follow our plans. I mean, I see a lot of me in Jonah. Because um, I'm typically the type of person that feels like it should probably be done my way. Because my way is probably the best way. And if people aren't going to do it my way, then I'll go play somewhere else. And that's that's what I have to fight. Like I'm arrogant and prideful in that way that I think that I'm usually right when it comes to how we should do something. If you're not going to do it my way, then I'll just go somewhere else. I'll just take my toys and go home. And that's what Jonah does here. I mean, he says, God, if you're going to do it this way, I don't want any part of this prophet stuff anymore. I'm going to go. I'm going to Spain. Like I'm I'm going to opt out. Like I'm I'm done. I don't want to be used by you anymore. You're doing things differently than I think they should be done. Now, we probably would never verbalize that. Like, we're not going to have confession time if somebody stands up and says, you know, I consistently think God should do things differently, and he doesn't do them, and so I'm angry at God. Like, we don't verbalize that kind of thing, but we need to be really honest with ourselves as we're going through this book. It may not be to the extreme. I mean, Jonah's kind of an extreme example. I mean, he hates these people. I mean, he's running clear across the country to get away from God and his people. But if there's aspects of that that's true about us, we need to have those revealed. We need, to, we need to confess those things and turn from those things. I want to give you four contacts to be thinking through in regards to gospel and evangelization. Four contacts that we have, and I want you to kind of spend some time thinking as we're continuing through this book, how faithful am I being in these areas with the gospel? The first is your neighborhood. Wherever you live, neighborhood, apartment complex, your living situation, how faithful are you being with the gospel in your neighborhood? Secondly, how faithful are you being in your workplace? Those two apply to all of us. Like we all live somewhere and we all do something, even if that means we go to school. That's your, that's your job right now. So those two apply to both, all of us. Third one applies to all of us, family. I would venture to say most all of us have family members that we're either not sure if they're saved or we know for sure they're not saved. The fourth one may only apply to some of us, and that's our area of hobbies. Some of us potentially have hobbies that put us in contact with people that give us gospel opportunities. It might even be your kids, right? Like your kids play sports, so that puts you in context with people that it's not people you work with, you don't live with, and they're not family, but these are people that I see pretty regularly based on the hobbies and the interests that I have. So 
So I want you to spend some time thinking over these next few weeks as we're continuing through Jonah, allowing God to, to bring our mindset in line with his salvation plan and how we fit into that. How faithful are you being in these areas? Because I told you, I could rally some troops to go on a mission trip right now. And you guys would be willing to get off work and sacrifice finances to go overseas. It's far harder for me to rally troops to do something missional here. We're kind of the opposite of Jonah. Jonah says, I don't want to go there. I want to stay right here and talk to my people. A lot of us are quick to say, I'd rather go over there than talk to my people. I know in conversations with some of you, you're far more interested in potentially going there than being that type of person here. That's not trying to single anybody out. That's just saying kind of the state of where we're at as a church. I want us to become so missionally minded here in Sonoy that it becomes real obvious who we should be sending overseas to do it to. Like it should be, man, when is that person going to go overseas and do They're so effective here, they could definitely go do it over there. We're not like Jonah. Some of us are eager to maybe go, not as eager to stay and do it here. These are questions I want you to kind of work through on your own so that we can work through them together as a church moving forward. Let's pray together. God, I'm thankful for the honesty of of the story of Jonah. God, I don't know who wrote this book, and I'm thankful that if Jonah did, that he got to the point where he was okay with writing himself in such a bad light. Because, Father, I think we need to see that type of heart attitude so that we can assess ourselves. And God, I'm, I'm willing to admit that um, there's far too much of Jonah in me. And God, I want to see you change those attitudes in me moving forward. God, I want to be someone who is faithfully communicating the gospel and not making judgments on who should and shouldn't receive that good news. God, I don't want to opt out of my responsibilities because I doubt your effectiveness. God, I know you're merciful and compassionate and gracious. God, sometimes I doubt that you're going to do the necessary work to save people. So, God, I pray that you would uh, defeat those doubts in my own life. God, help me to be reminded of the fact that you've called me to be faithful, not effective, that you're the, ultimately the one who saves souls, not me. And God, I pray that every single person in our church would be able to evaluate where they fit into uh, doubting your salvation plan, why we're not more faithful in, in sharing the gospel with those that we come in contact with, whether it's our neighborhood, our workplace, our family, people that we come in contact with through our hobbies. God, I pray that you reveal to us what is holding us back from being that new covenant type believer who's allowing the gospel to just spill out of their lives with those they come in contact with. God, expose our sin to us. Father, I pray that it would not take a great storm or a great fish to get our attention. Instead, Father, I pray that we would be willing to cry out to you now be faithful to align ourselves with your plan. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. 
Again, that's www.sivehope.org.